You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hello there, welcome to a brand new Arseblog Arsecast right here on Arseblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. This is an interlull Arsecast. That's right. We don't always do an Arsecast during the interlull because there isn't much to talk about because normally the Friday Arsecast revolves around the game that we've got coming up at the weekend. We don't have a game coming up at the weekend. We also haven't had a game in midweek to look back on. So normally we let it pass. And I'm sure if you listen to the Arsecast Extra on Monday, myself and James did 90 minutes talking about West Brom and talking about the whole situation at this football club. And I was thinking about this podcast and going, you know, I just, I just can't do another conversation about Arsene Wenger. What's gone wrong? What can he do to fix it? Is he the man to fix it? Is he not the man to fix it? Should he stay? Should he go? Is he going to stay? Is he going to go? Where the hell is Ivan Gazidis? Where's Stan Kroenke? Does anybody really care where Stan Kroenke is? Could he do more nothing than he's doing already? What about the coaches? What about the players? And, you know, we've done it. Everything that we needed to say about this current situation at Arsenal, James and I said on the Arsecast Extra on Monday. So it would be just like rehashing what we already talked about because nothing much has happened this week. And anyway, I've been writing about it all week on arsblog.com. So what is the point in me doing another podcast in which we talk about the same things and come to more or less the same conclusions about what should happen and probably what won't happen, etc., etc.? There's no point. No point me putting you through that. You've lived it and experienced it the same way that I have this week through uh, reading it and listening to the, uh, to the podcast and just generally being an Arsenal fan. So we need something a little bit different, right? And that's what we've got today. I'm going to be talking to somebody a little bit about Arsenal because they are an Arsenal fan, but mostly we're talking about talking, which sounds a little bit weird, but when you're talking about talking to one of the best interviewers in the game, well, then it becomes a different thing altogether. My guest today on the show is uh, Donald McRae, who's an author and journalist uh, who grew up in South Africa and who I'm sure many of you read every week in The Guardian. He does a long-form interview with somebody from the world of sports, usually. Uh, they're always enlightening, always interesting, and he has a, a brilliant ability to get to the very heart of a person. And it's not always easy to do. You know, there are lots of people who do interviews but don't necessarily get what they should or get what they could out of somebody. And Donald has this uh, remarkable talent to be able to connect with people and also to approach the people that he's talking to in a very fair and open-minded way. Because sometimes, you know, the subjects of an interview can be difficult, maybe not the nicest people in the world. Maybe they're very guarded for, for different reasons. Maybe they're traumatized. Maybe there's something going on in their life that doesn't allow them to open up. And he has this uh, talent to be able to, to, to get them to do that. So I wanted to talk to him about that, but also talk to him about his uh, life growing up in South Africa, what it was that, that made him an Arsenal fan. And it's, a very, it's quite an unusual story as to why he became an Arsenal fan, uh, certainly not the conventional route, particularly as we're talking about South Africa in the 1970s. Donald has also written, uh, I think, 11 books at this point. There was one out last year, which if you haven't, I can't recommend it highly enough, called A Man's World, the story of Emil Griffith, who was a, a world champion boxer in his story. But he's written about people like uh, Jesse Owens and Joe Lewis, the world of boxing with Mike Tyson, Don King, uh, Oscar De La Hoya. He's twice won the William Hill Sportsbook of the Year. And uh, I think it's a very interesting conversation with a man who's produced some very, very uh, fine work down the years. And uh, long may he continue to do so. So this is my conversation with Donald McRae. 
I want to start by talking about a little bit about where you came from, and that was South Africa. You were born in, in South Africa. And one, one of the things that's always struck me from reading the interviews that you do and, and some of your books and the way that you talk to people and about people is that there, there always uh, seemed to me to be a real sense of fairness to the way that you try and present the story, whatever it is, it's not always an an easy story. Is that a consequence of having grown up in a country and in a, in a society that that really wasn't fair? It's a good point, and I, I haven't thought about that for a while. But I, I think the answer is unequivocally yes. I think South Africa in the nineteen sixties and seventies, when I was a kid, I epitomised injustice and inequality and lack of fairness. And I think as I, you know, when I was living out in South Africa, I was a huge Arsenal fan at the time, um, but I, I, I was full of teenage angst against apartheid and I would vent a lot of spleen, a bit like, you know, the kind of people who are on Arsenal fan TV now, that was me <laughs> back in the 70s. Um, but I learned after a while that actually it's far better to just take a step back and attempt to listen to people with compassion and give them a chance to voice their their viewpoints. So yeah, clearly I think my South African past and that injustice of that past has influenced my sort of outlook on life. Yeah, and and, uh, as a place to grow up though, um, filled with with sport, and you you write in your website that you're a a huge sports fan as well as music fan and and everything else. I mean, how was it from from that point of view to sort of live within the confines of that society, but still enjoy things that, like the rest of us over here, would I guess in a way take take for granted? Just their part well, parcel of normal society. It, it was a bizarre sort of time when I look back at it. It was a little like living in sort of uh, Beverly Hills in Los Angeles, palatial homes, swimming pool. We didn't have a swimming pool. All my friends had swimming pools. The weather was gorgeous. So it was a, a fantastically privileged life we had, good education, access to all kinds of music and sport. But at the same time, our houses were filled with black people who we called them servants. So it was quite a, by the time I was about 10 or 11, I was starting to think this is kind of bizarre that people I knew so well who worked in the house for my family they could only have their cup of coffee in their own mug. They couldn't use the mugs that my mother and father and my sister and I used. Mm. They had to use their own black mug. And that just that little tiny note of domesticity started me thinking, and I started to work out this is quite a warped society. And I think that's kind of where slowly my political consciousness developed. And certainly sport was a huge thing because South Africa was subjected to a sports boycott. Yeah. And we all love sport. And when we couldn't play international sport, I would say to my dad, but why? My dad would say, well, it's because of the way the world perceives us. And I'd say, well, why don't they like us? And my dad said, well, that's because of apartheid. So sport was, again, a huge factor in opening up my mind and seeing the injustice that sort of enveloped us in South Africa. Yeah. I mean, look, I I think it's... um not everybody wakes up to that, do they? Not everybody has that realization because sometimes when you're brought up in a certain way, what what is normal or what you're used to is normal. Yeah. You don't think about it being right or wrong, but but to have the sense of well, this is this is not right. This yeah. Is, well, I think for me it was sort of you know I loved people like Muhammad Ali. And most of my teachers at school would say, wow, isn't Ali a fantastic fighter? Isn't he an amazing person? And we'd say, but sir, he's he's black. How do you feel about that? And he's, they would say, oh, well, he's not one of our blacks. You know, <laughs> there was a distinction between a South African black and a fantastic guy like Muhammad Ali, who was almost beyond color. So again, that that's when my anger started to surface because they could not see kind of the hypocrisy of, of their statements. But um, for me, who loved music, especially black music, again, that meant I couldn't easily accept apartheid by the time I was sort of in my teens. 
the, the injustice could not be um, just turned to one side. So music and sport were, were huge factors in opening up my mind. Yeah, and, and music and sport as well are incredible ways of breaking down those divisions, whether it's conscious or not, in, in a way, you know, black sports people or black musicians can cross over into the consciousness of, uh, into a society where they're not necessarily welcomed, you know, mm. and, and it's their the talent and people look beyond perhaps skin color for those reasons. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I got disappointed and upset when, you know, um, other people who, mainly sort of older than me, say teachers who could exalt Ali um, or Pele, um, but then would step back and say, well, yeah, that's sport and they don't live here. And therefore, you know, we're still going to perpetuate our, our sort of prejudice towards black people living in our own society. Yeah. And yet, as I said, it was kind of weird because our houses were filled with black people who you know, looked after the kids, um, were part of the family in many ways. And it, it's, it's a, it was just a, a weird, weird society. And fortunately, um, apartheid, although there's still division between black and white economically in South Africa, mm. at least that basic naked apartheid system has long gone. Um. So is that in, in some ways why, I mean, you turned your teenage angst, as you described it, into something a bit more positive? You were a teacher for a while. Yeah, um, I was a teacher sort of in my early 20s. This was sort of in the, in the 1980s, partly as a way of escaping the army, because in, in apartheid as a, as a white South African, you had to go into the army for two years and then do nine camps, and you'd be fighting on the border in places like Angola, where there was a war going on. So it was a bit like the Vietnam situation in, in the U.S. In the, in the 1960s. And one way of staying out of the army was just to be a student for as long as possible. <laughs> so I, I kept doing that until I was about 21, and, and um, I then thought I'd quite like to earn a little bit of money. And a friend of mine who was a woman from London who lived in Johannesburg at the time, she suggested that why not go into Soweto um, to to teach, and uh, suddenly all my fears came to the fore. I was thinking, but Soweto, that's full of one million black people, no whites are allowed in. And she said, well, you're always talking about apartheid not being good. Why don't you go see if you can do something good? So I called up a, a black school, and I think initially they thought I was going to be a spy because they were not used to sure. any white person wanting to come work for them. And again, how sport and music helped me. On my first morning as a teacher, after they accepted my application, um, they took me into a little shabine, uh, which is like, a, as, you, as you understand in Ireland, a, a sort of a drinking den. Yeah. This was 8 o'clock in, in the morning. And um, there were pictures of fantastic uh, black sportsmen, black musicians, that I could immediately start talking about, and I felt at home. And I had a wonderful two years in, in Soweto. And um, I think I learned much more than I actually taught. Right. But again, it was the shaping of me, I think. Yeah. And I mean, that there must have been a huge amount to learn as much as you can see the division in society and you can see the people that worked in your house and, and worked with your family. You're sort of right in the middle of it. You're seeing it from a different perspective then. I mean, there must have been, it must have been hugely life-changing to see it from from that perspective it was absolutely because suddenly i had black people who who had become my friends beforehand they always worked for my for my family or um you went into a shop and a black person would serve you but suddenly i was working with fellow teachers in soweto and i just got to know these people so well and i would go to parties with them i'd hang out with them and suddenly i'd look at a a young black woman, I was in my early 20s, and I think, wow, she's quite a good-looking girl. And I would attempt to use my charm, which didn't work too often, but sometimes it, it did. <laughs> but, you know, suddenly, Andrew, that just changes your perceptions because you're now with people, mm. you know, who are equal to, to you and better than you in, in, in many ways. So it had a huge seismic impact on, on my perception of life. Um, in South Africa. So you, you moved to England to avoid conscription. There was, ne there was never any thought in your mind that this was something that you were, you were going to do to fulfill that national service. No. I was, by the time I was about 12, I knew I would never go in. And, and it caused a lot of pain in our family because my family knew I would have to leave. The only other alternative was to go to jail, which was a six-year sentence. 
And I used to, in my when I was 15, 16, sort of, you know, fired up and say, oh, I'm going to go into jail for six years. And hard for my mother and father to hear that. But I think deep down, I was far too scared. And I, I couldn't face the idea of being in jail for six years. But at the same time, I shouldn't make it out as a hardship because the, the lure of coming to overseas, as we, as we called it, into a place like London, me as an Arsenal supporter to the idea of actually seeing Arsenal live yeah. was, a, was a wonderful uh, uh, magnet for me. And to go to gigs in the 1980s, I was so excited to see subtitled films. Um, it was a huge adventure for me to come to, to the UK. Um, so although I, I, it was painful for me to leave South Africa, because when I left, it was with the implication I would not be able to go for met, go back home for many, many years. How long, how long was it before you were able to go back? It wasn't too bad. It was only four years. Um, I was able to go back in 1988 because um, things were starting to change then. And Mandela came out in 1990 out of jail after 26 years. Um, but yeah, for those four years when I couldn't, it, it was it was hard because it was a kind of an exile um, because I had no choice. Um, and I, the British government kept wanting to kick me out and I had to apply for political asylum here. Blimey. Even though I'm of Scottish descent. It was quite a complicated time. But at the same time, I was, uh, these were the days of, uh, Ian Allison was playing for Arsenal and uh, Don Howe was manager. It was, it was not the most exciting time to be an Arsenal fan. It was the... Charlie Nicholas days, too, yeah. which was initially exciting. But then, you know, those mid-80s days as an Arsenal fan, um, there were a lot of disappointing days then. <laughs> but it was fantastic for me just to be in London. What was it that made you an Arsenal fan from that distance? Because I think, you know, we look now at the globalisation of football and also how easy it is, uh, comparatively speaking, for people to be able to follow a team, you know, through websites, through blogs, through podcasts. You, yeah. The TV rights are sold all over the world. Fans can connect with each other. You know, we have people who visit Ars blog from, from literally every corner of the globe. They're part of, you know, what's now considered a big global Arsenal community. But in the 1980s, uh, it wasn't quite it wasn't quite that way. What was it about Arsenal that caught your eye? Well, this all sounds shocking. Partly it shows how old I am, but it also has an insight into how backward South Africa was. Television was banned in South Africa until um, 1976. And I fell in love with Arsenal in 1969. I was eight years old. Arsenal played Swindon. Oh. One of our most painful days oh. as, as Arsenal fans because Swindon were the old sort of third division um, and famously or infamously beat Arsenal. And I saw a five-minute clip before I went to a movie. Um, they had something called Movie to News. They would have the international highlights from all over the world. And because we didn't have television, it was so exciting for us to, to see a little clip of the outside world before we went to a movie. And um, they showed this couple of minutes highlight, black and white footage, obviously, of Arsenal against Swindon in the League Cup final. And normally kids support the, uh, the winning team. And I don't know, it says something about my um, <laughs> fucked up way of thinking. I ended up supporting the team who lost. And, well, I think I had a lucky escape then, because if I'd been a Swindon fan, mm. even though I've been moaning this season a little bit about uh, all kinds of things, I think a Swindon, being a Swindon fan, that would have been a heavy burden. Yeah. But a wonderful time as an Arsenal fan. But that's how, I don't know why, I just chose to support Arsenal in 1969. Um, and the only way I could follow it was on what was called the wireless in those days. Yeah. Saturday afternoons. At about six o'clock in South African time, they'd switch to BBC World Service and you would hear a game and it was normally Leeds because Leeds were kind of the dominant side then. Um, but I would sometimes hear Arsenal on the wireless, which was so exciting. But more often than, than not, I wouldn't hear the score. So I would have to wait for the newspaper the following morning, dash to the corner shop and they didn't have anything beyond the scores and I would turn the page and I'd see it would be Manchester City 1, Arsenal 0. Oh. oh, the pain. <laughs> so that's sort of how I kind of fell in love with, with Arsenal. It was a slow, slow burn. Um, but when I came in the 1980s, suddenly, you know, I could go each week. Yeah. You, only had, you could turn up on the North Bank, you know, half an hour early at 2.30, pay your four quid. 
Um, so my son now is a huge Arsenal fan. And, you know, when I tell him these kind of things, he just he finds it hard to believe. Um, but that's that's sort of how my own personal sort of Arsenal um Sort of uh, love affair. Sure, I mean maybe that's some a theme that runs through your work. This, this uh, seeking out the underdog in a way, or or rejecting the the winner, I guess. Uh, <laughs> when you look at you look at what happened against Swindon that time, and look, we've had some of those moments down the years. <laughs> and, and, we certainly have. Yeah, you know, but it's part and parcel of the Arsenal experience, I think. Um, you can't. You, I don't know, well, you'd like to live without it, but you just can't because they don't <laughs> they don't let you. <laughs> but when you when you came to the UK, then. And what was what was your intention in terms of what were you twenty three twenty four something yeah, like that just just had my twenty third birthday mm. and I'd always said to my mother and father I'm going to become an author and in hindsight you know it was totally an insane thing to say um, because I had no I didn't know anyone outside of South Africa um, I came to London. I didn't. The, the only I had one contact with the enemy, the old music paper, because mm. I used to have the fanzine, which was sort of set sort of local music in South Africa, and I'd sent it to an enemy journalist um, and said, "I'm coming to England. I'd love to work for the enemy because you know, 1980s, a lot of people loved the enemy." Yeah. And he sort of said, "Oh, I quite like your fanzine. Come, let's meet." Um, so he was my one contact when I came in 1984. A guy called Barney Hoskins, who's a wonderful music writer, and Barney sort of said, "You know, why don't you? I'll speak to the sort of uh, editor and see if you can maybe do a few little gigs." And within a couple of weeks, I, I was going to see bands for the enemy, and yeah, I had my 250 words, which I would slave over all day to get those <laughs> 250 words. <laughs> So I, I feel your pain on a daily basis doing Ask Blog. I know what it's like. Um, but that gave me so much impetus, and that started me off. And mm. you know, and I'm now working, although I do work for The Guardian and do the interviews, um, mainly I'm, I'm working as an author. And so somehow it's kind of worked out, which is hard to believe. Was it always your intention to go down the non-fiction road, or did you have ambitions of perhaps being... Uh, a novelist, I suppose. Maybe yeah, that's the distinction I, you know, between. I had the whole mythology of being a novelist. That's clear. That's what I always said. I wanted to be a, a novelist, um, and I did for for many years. Um, but then I started doing books. My first first book was on the on the sex business in London. My mm. second book was on boxing with people like Mike Tyson. Who I spent five years following people like Tyson, um, and I suddenly started to think. Well, actually. Um, real life is is so evocative and compelling, and I'm meeting these highly unusual people. They're far more compelling than anyone I could imagine. And um, then I started to do books, some which was set further back in time. Mm. I did books about criminal lawyers. I did books about Jesse Owens and, and, and Joe Lewis. Um, so for me, sitting in my little shed in the garden, it's, it's quite exciting because I could go back to Chicago in the 1920s, or I could, you know, be with Mike Tyson at the height of his infamy. And it's been a wonderful opportunity for me working in nonfiction um, because I've met some unusual people, whether it's in sport, politics, um, all kinds of fields of, mm. of life. I feel, you know, amazingly lucky to have had these opportunities. That's a really, I think that's a really interesting phrase that you use there, unusual people, because if you say that to somebody who said that they're, that's an unusual person, you would think he's a bit strange or he's a weirdo yeah. or stay away from him. But yeah. perhaps the perhaps the the fact that this is somebody who, let's say Mike Tyson, who is at the very top or was at the very top of his game, the, the most famous boxer in the world at the time, just by its very nature, that is in itself unusual and, and comes with all this, this baggage or comes with all the things that make that person because they are, they're very rare. Mm. And especially, you know, Tyson, when I, when I got to know him, it was just before he went into jail and he was fighting for like $30 million a fight and he had no little education, but he was clearly intelligent. So I immediately was interested in him because when I spoke to him, his answers were so evocative and kind of deep thinking, which a lot of people say, oh, Mike Tyson, of course, he's just a thug. 
and he is a thug many in times in his life he has been a despicable thug but there's another side to mike tyson that if you can get beyond sort of the um, thuggishness of him and the lunacy of boxing in las vegas where he's making 30 million dollars um i found a human being that was quite um complex and damaged and again my south african past was enormously helpful to me because initially he heard my accent and he said you're not english i said no he said where are you from and i said johannesburg and he just kind of burst out laughing <laughs> and he, he said you south african coming to talk to me mike tyson and um but immediately we had this kind of bond and he started asking me a few questions. So the whole, instead of a question answer interview, it became a, a conversation mm. that was enormously helpful to me. And um, I think I also, from South Africa, I had learned not to make quick judgments. Yeah. Uh, because the whole of South African society was based on a quick judgment. What color are you? Um, and I think that informed my interaction with people that I thought, well, I'm going to give whoever I meet um, a chance just to, you know, engage with each other and see whether I can make up my own mind if I, if I like this person. Yeah, I mean, th I think that's something that's extremely relevant now because even in this day and age, we everything appears to be very binary, doesn't it? You know, a person is one thing and that's the only thing that they are. And yeah. you talk about trying to find the humanity behind a person who's done bad things and despicable mm. things, as you say, it's not always easy to do that. It's not easy. I think in ways we're, we're being, I won't say controlled by the media, but this idea that you, you have to put somebody in a compartment, you have to put them in a box and they can't exist outside of that box, that this one thing or one character trait or one uh, event or just w one thing they might have said, that's what that's yeah. what defines them in the public consciousness. And the reality, of course, is that even the worst people are human. Of course, there's always multifaceted aspects to each person. And it's not that one should um, soft soap your uh, depiction of, of, of a person who's done bad things. It's important to actually confront that person mm. and say, and I would with Tyson, I did say to him, you have done these things. And, and slowly admissions would come and confessions would come and not that I, he needed to confess to me anything. But I, I think totally what you're saying, Andrew, is on the button is that now these days, over the last sort of 15 years, maybe people like to have the simplistic little box. This is good. This is bad. And as we know, life is full of all kinds of nuances and shades and subtleties. People are always different, shifting personas. And I always attempt to get to what I hopefully can find the core person within them, many persona they, they might use. And this is particularly famous people might use to sort of um, obscure things. And it's amazing with people, if you show them sort of decency and you listen to them, sometimes you can then ask more difficult questions and then they mm. will answer you. Yeah, I mean, sometimes people have a public persona that's um, that's in some ways a shield from from I guess looking to inside themselves uh, from introspection in a way. Uh, sometimes it's there very obviously because it's uh, like if you look at someone, I, I would say like Conor McGregor, there's a public persona yeah. there that feels very. It's an artifice. It's very very manufactured. But other people have a. a a persona that perhaps is there to protect them in a way because they don't trust what people might say or what people might think if they let the real them be seen. Yeah, and they, I guess, are hurting inside and, and this persona can become like a shield to deflect attention or to scare off people. But I think, yeah, definitely Conor McGregor, I have interviewed him and he's fascinating. He's a wonderful talker. <laughs> but I haven't had enough time with him to sort of see the actual genuine Connor beyond the bluster. And Don King would be a wonderful example is, I was with King many times and you know what King was like mm. at, at his peak of, of bluster and he would be misquoting Shakespeare, highly amusing and fascinating to be with him, but it can also wear you down and be exhausting. But there were many times where I'd be with King and be, he'd be talking to a thousand people and he would be turning on the, the charm and the big words and then suddenly you get into the limousine with Don King and it'd just be you and him. 
and it, like a shutter would come down and all that nonsense stopped. Mm. Suddenly start talking to you just in quite a calm, deadpan kind of voice and just say, I'm so tired. He would say, <laughs> and also Chris Eubank, another kind of boxer who has a persona. Um, but actually, if you're one-to-one with Eubank um, and he's not doing an interview, he talks like a normal person. Mm. And so I was quite fascinated how um, these kind of people, larger-than-life figures, use their persona to sell things, to deflect attention from them, their, their deepest core. Um, but I guess, yeah, those worlds, boxing, UFC, always lends themselves to... Um, yeah, I mean, that's what, life figures. that's what I was going to ask you, because so much of it is about how you're perceived and how you're seen. Uh, you, you know, you can't you can't be seen to be weak. And I think that was evident in the book that you wrote uh, last year, the one that was released last year, A Man's World, the story of uh, Emil Griffith, which is it is um, it's a book when I was reading it, I was thinking, oh, my God, I mean, this this is a guy who just cannot be true to himself, who's dealing with so many inner demons, not least because in a in a sense, when he tried to obscure who he was with the machismo, with the, the fury of fighting, he, he caused uh, such damage to another man that that was something that lived with him as well. It was like layering this, this trauma on top of a trauma because of the world that he existed in, because he was a, a gay man who couldn't come out. Uh, he was a world champion boxer. And given the time he lived in, he just couldn't. It's, uh, you know, I think we, we like to think now that we're more enlightened, uh, but back then it must have just been a, a traumatic life. Well, you know, I was kind of shocked, and even me coming out of South Africa, where it was such a, as I said earlier, unbelievable world that people were defined by the color of their skin. But I was shocked when I started working on that particular book to, you know, Emil in in the 1960s, he was living in New York. And the fact that homosexuality was banned, you know, in, in the 1960s and even the early 1970s, even in the state of New York, which we always think is a bastion, a bastion of freedom and liberty, I was just gobsmacked by that. And then the whole idea that here we have a young black world champion boxer who happens to be gay. Um, I just started thinking, wow, this must have been so difficult for him. And, and then to, to meet um, sort of people who were close to him at the time gave me such an insight into this, these two worlds that he occupied both defined by men. One was a world of violence, boxing, attempting to beat up a, an opponent. And the other world was to, full of, I guess, fun and love. And he was a gay man. That's where he found his, his love amongst other, amongst other men. And these two worlds were so opposite. Um, and I felt enormously moved um, many times whilst working on that particular book. Mm. It's an f- absolutely fantastic book. I'd recommend it to uh, to anybody who's looking for something to read uh, in the sports uh, sphere. It- it's absolutely brilliant. Right, we've got to take just a very, very short little break here. In the middle, we're going to come back and talk to Donald a little bit more about interviews, the art of interviewing and everything else right after this. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a It's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Now, when it, when it came or when it comes to, to interviews, uh, at what point did you or did you at any point realize that you have a real ability to talk to people in a way that gets 
a story from them because, you know, interviews are 10 a penny and interviewers are 10 a penny, but really good interviewers, I'm not trying to blow smoke up your arse here, are quite rare. In some ways, you remind me a little bit of... Um, Mark Maron. I don't know if you listen to Mark yeah, Maron's yeah, podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a there's a sort of natural ability to get stories from people because they feel like they can talk to you. Are you or were you aware of that? Um, I think I was lucky in the sense that um, I started to learn how to interview people as an author. I wasn't a journalist as mm. such. I was working on my books, um, and so I would be spending years with people um, and I started to get to know them well and I'm actually essentially quite even though I'm waffling away here, babbling away I'm, I'm quite a shy person essentially and I sometimes find it quite difficult to um, ask hard questions so sometimes I would talk more about myself and I would be bumbling and I'd be knocking over <laughs> my coffee onto Mike Tyson's uh, new thousand dollar mink coat in a few moments like that i was a total buffoon but actually that helped because i think they saw my kind of uh, weaknesses and and my uh failings and that meant their defenses came down and then i suddenly started to work out actually the best way to interview someone is to take away any feeling well this is my perspective that they are not on their guard because if they are on their guard they're going to say, attempt to say as little as possible. Mm. But if they feel comfortable with you, then they're more likely to, to open up. Um, and I still go into my interviews these days, hopefully with good intentions to be fair to that person. But I think I also, it is a, perhaps there's a little artifice going on that I, I do attempt to settle them and make them feel that I'm not actually out to persecute them or hound them. And because of that, they, they seem to feel a bit more comfortable. Mm. And then sometimes they can say things um, that nor in a normal bog standard media interview they wouldn't say. Um, so it's a mix of um, be, being a bit of a bumbler sometimes <laughs> and also hopefully with, with um, some honesty in the way I deal with people and hopefully a semblance of, of being fair to them. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a very important thing that, you know, being able to present or or the person you're talking to feeling confident that they're not going to be misrepresented whenever it is they tell you things that that they're going to tell you uh, yeah. I, I think that's a i think that's a, a really really big part of it um i mean you obviously when you go and interview somebody sometimes you're going for something quite specific you know there's specific reasons or there's a specific story behind that but i mean are you also happy if during the course of the conversation it goes somewhere completely different, I mean, I think that's probably an important part of it too, is being able to to move in a tangent away from perhaps what you thought you were going to get and you go and get something different or perhaps something better. Yeah, I think that's where sometimes the best interviews happen. You go in with a set idea and I always go in with a list, a long list of questions. I normally have about 50 or 60 questions, which is a bit disconcerting for the poor person opposite me. They see all these questions. But more than likely, that person sometimes will take us down a new tangent, which is far more fascinating than I had initially been thinking my questions were. So, yeah, I think, Andrew, it's, it's so important, like anything in life, to be open, to be flexible and to listen. I think that's the key thing I learned, actually, is to listen to people. It's not about me. No one actually cares about what my perceptions are of whoever I might be interviewing next week. It's far more important to give space to that interviewee to talk so he or she can tell us a little bit about what's going on in, in their, their world. And if you listen closely, like, I'm not playing smoke up your ass here now, but <laughs> the, the fact you've been listening in, in our sort of discussions here and you've led me down paths I wasn't expecting to go down this afternoon. If you listen, it can then open up an interview into a much more meaningful um, exchange, I think. Yeah, 
Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And it's, uh, it's quite an experience sometimes, isn't it? That if you're talking to somebody and you're thinking, okay, you know, you, like you, you have your list of questions. I'm really not as prepared as, as you are. I didn't have 50 or 60 questions for you. Um, and I, I, you know, I've got some notes scribbled down here, but I tend to, as much as possible, allow the thing to go in whatever direction it's going to go in, you know? And it, it, it is really nice when that happens because sometimes, you know, I've done uh, interviews and I've done podcasts, you know, football and otherwise, and you sit down and you talk to somebody and then you go, wow, we've been speaking for 45 minutes or 50 minutes or an hour. And it's somebody you've never met before. Maybe even somebody that you were perhaps a little bit intimidated or nervous about talking to. And you realize that just by talking and listening and having a conversation, you've passed a really pleasant and enjoyable hour. Yeah. Absolutely. And th- those are the exciting moments. So that's why I still, you know, my wife is sometimes saying to me, oh, are you, when are you going to stop doing these interviews? And I still love it because, sure, there are the odd bum one where it's, it's kind of hard work. But most mm. of the, actually, there are moments you can be doing an hour-long interview. So often the case, especially with sportsmen and women who are so used to being interviewed, you might be going the first 30 minutes thinking, Jesus, this is so dull. It's going nowhere. And then suddenly, out of nowhere... The guy just, or the woman just says something and you think, wow, that's kind of unusual. And then they take you down to somewhere totally new. And it's not just about them being a sportsman or sportswoman, but they're talking about themselves as human beings and adversity they've faced, things they still like to do. And suddenly, you know, out of an hour-long interview, there might only be 10 minutes that is kind of special, but those 10 minutes can be so intense and so compelling. Mm. Suddenly, when for me to then put it down on paper um, at my laptop, it's actually quite easy because those 10 minutes are, are so moving and involving. Um, but yeah, there might be 50 minutes of kind of anodyne, bog standard stuff as yeah. well. It's, um, I mean, what, what, what's your process when you, on a daily basis, are you someone who writes every day or? You know, I, I certainly from my point of view, I write every single day and I would feel very strange if I didn't. But then I am expected to in a way. But yeah. you're doing you're doing something uh, on a weekly basis, more or less for The Guardian. And then when the books are coming out, uh, you know, people understand that there's a lot of writing goes into books, but we don't see the end product of that for, you know, months and months at a time. Yeah. But, yeah. It, you know, is it something that you have to do every day in a way? I, I, I do. I do. And um I think uh, I, there's a couple of I'm working on a couple of things simultaneously bookwise, and it, it has meant that I, I'm working sort of seven days a week, um, and I've been doing this for many many months now. Uh, besides New Year's Day, I haven't had a, a day off for about five months, but it, because it doesn't actually feel like work because it's, it's yeah. so different. Whether it's the interviews, there's always someone new. And the books, um, you know, with it being nonfiction, as we've touched on, I'm doing such diverse subjects. And as I've got a couple of things going on at the moment. And the deadlines are such that I, I have to work each day, which lends a liberty because and for you too, I think. And I often, you know, my day, I might have been going for a few hours and then I'll stop and have a coffee and then I'll get, click onto my ask blog uh, daily and I'll be thinking, gosh, Andrew's done it again. <laughs> and it's, uh, you know, I just think, like you, there's, there's not a choice, and it's something, well, there is a choice in the sense that we want to do this, but the fact that it's kind of cast in stone that you will do this on a daily basis, and for me, I have deadlines to meet, um, and they're quite harsh, demanding deadlines. Mm. I've, I've just got to do it. And if, if there's no choice if, to meet your deadline or the way you work on a, on a, you know, there's a daily blog, it actually just means you get on and do it. Yeah. And um, that, that helps a lot. And a lot of people, you know, there's such so many talented people out there who could do wonderful work. Uh, people who haven't perhaps got a commission to do a book um, or they don't have a, a, a sort of journalistic assignment, but are just doing things sort of in the hope that it will get seen somewhere on a blog. It's much harder to have that discipline, I think. Yeah. Uh, and I always say to people, just do it. Just go out there. Do your, your blog as often as you want to and as often as you can. And even if it's only being seen by a few people, you'll get that, you know, it will slowly get noticed. But I mean, I guess with you, when you first started, there weren't too many people, you know, 
clicking on to, to Askblog all those years ago. No. Whereas now, obviously, you, you know there's uh, so many, many people each day looking sure. at your blog. Well, I mean, it's one of those things. I get emails quite a lot from people and, you know, from uh, students and from people who want to be sports journalists and those uh, those kind of people who will email me and say, look, how how did you make Arsblog so big? How did it happen? You know, what's what's the trick? And I was going, well, <laughs> there's no trick. Uh, it's a bit it, insane. <laughs> it's 15 years old. Uh, so that's that's kind of what you got to do. You know, you got to do it every day and be consistent and be frequent with the stuff that you produce. And, uh, you know, a lot of them do go away and, and set up blogs. And, uh, you know, I know I've had some emails back from people who have who've gone places from having set up a blog and started writing and honed their craft in a, in, in a certain way because just they've been practicing writing, which is, which is yeah, already... Yeah, really, I think it, it, the discipline helps and you also get better and if you just yeah. do anything. And um, yeah, I, I think it, it does, you just need to put in a lot, of, a lot of years of work. I mean, my first book was published in 1992 and I'm on my 11th and my 12th now. Um, but it's because it, it's something I love doing. Um, the hard work, actually, you can get it. You can just about do it. Yeah. And with you, with Arsenal, kind of labor of love, but, <laughs> you know, you, that's part of who you are. And um, I think we are so lucky. Um, and that's why when young people, I don't want to start patronizing here, but when, you know, young, young people do send you emails or contact you like you've been talking about people contacting you i always attempt to be kind of enthusiastic and, and supportive because it is hard and i think now i'm in such a privileged position that i i, I you know i'm able to do these things that i love doing but starting out i think now even though with the modern you know with blogs and, and podcasts there's so many opportunities and you're not dependent on big publishers you can go out there and yeah. do it yeah. But also, it's it's hard because there's so much noise. There's so many, so much stuff going about that. How does a young person starting out with their blog or podcast? How do they get noticed? Well, you know what though, I, I um, from having listened to to Mark Maron's podcast quite a lot, and I've, one of the things that always strikes me is the again we go back to the humanity of people, and you listen to famous actors or singers or musicians or comedians, whoever it is that he has on. Yeah. Um, the, the one common factor, I think, is that all the people that somehow got a break or got a noticed or got an album that got picked up or got a comedy show that got picked up or, you know, they were doing things. They were yeah. actually doing it. And that's, I think, where the, that's the first step, isn't it, is to be out there and to be producing things or trying to, to make your way rather than uh, talking about, well, I would like to do this or I would like to. I mean, I'm sure you've met loads of people who say, oh, I'd love to write a book. Yeah. I'd love I'd love to. Well, you know, just, yeah. just I know it's not easy, but, you know, really, that's what it comes down to is is kind of just do it. Look, a couple of um, quick things before we finish up here. Um yeah. It's probably a question that you're asked a lot and it might be a bit cheesy, but I know what my answer to this question would be. Um, but if you could interview anybody, I don't mean alive or dead, I mean anybody now that you haven't interviewed, and your list is much uh, shorter than mine because you've interviewed yeah. loads of them, uh, who, would you, who would you like to, to sit down with uh, over a prolonged period and try and get something out of? Well, this is going to sound so cheesy, one Arsenal fan to another, but... Arsene Wenger has been top of my yeah. my wish list um, for the last twenty years, and you know he doesn't. Arsene Wenger does not give any one-to-one -one interviews to sort of UK yeah. media, and you know via you I saw the Men in Blazers little interaction to the stuff he did there. Yeah, and I just thought uh, that he would be and putting aside the turmoil that he is in at the moment, which of course I'd like to ask him what is he doing and. Is he going to go? But putting that to one side, um, I would just be fascinated to spend a lot of time with mm. Arsene Wenger if I could. And I, I'm someone who has now, I think, slightly moved into the, yeah, the camp where he's, I feel he has to go. Personally, that's my own view, mm. kind of measured view, but I, I, mean, I think it's a view that perhaps you sort of articulated in, in Arsblog. Mm. Time is now that we need to change. But as a, as a man, as a manager, looking back over what he has done, 
I would love he he would be the person I'd like to interview more than anyone yeah. else. But that's kind of sad. Shows me as a one-dimensional Arsenal fan. No, I mean I, that's absolutely what I was going to say. Not not Arsene Wenger now because I don't think you can get to the very no, heart of or the truth of Arsene Wenger right now because there's so much going on. There's self-preservation. There are things that he says I think to yeah. maybe protect himself, but also to protect the club and to protect some of the players. But I think post-Arsenal, Arsene Wenger is due uh, a good Donald McCraying, if you don't mind me saying so. That would be an amazing thing to read. But it, it strikes me that it wouldn't be it wouldn't be an interview. An interview would not do that justice. I think we're, we're, we're in book territory here. Well, there, yeah, it would have to be a long old interview. And yeah, exactly <laughs> as you say, if it was an interview where I'd be interviewing him now as Arsenal manager, it would be impossible. But yes, if you could take those shackles off, and have him talking one day about all he's done. That would be fascinating. Really would. All the stuff that we're like dying to ask and all the questions from the stadium and all the things that have happened down the years, you know, it would be it would be amazing. But look, Donald hopefully he would stop saying that's fake news because yeah. that's one thing I've been thinking give that one up, Arsene, but <laughs> Yeah, I agree with I agree with that one. Um Listen, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much indeed for your for your time. Obviously, uh, you've told us how busy you are working seven days a week. So for taking the time out uh, and chatting to me on the podcast, uh, I really appreciate it. Uh, it's a pleasure. It's a, without being too cheesy, it's been an honor being on, on the podcast. So thanks a lot. Thanks, Donald. Well, there you go. Thank you very much indeed uh, to Donald McRae. Uh, if you don't know his stuff, you can find him on The Guardian every week. He does the interview there. Uh, go seek one out, click his name, and you get access uh, to just a, a, an am- amazing archive of brilliant interviews. You can also read his books. Uh, if you want more details of those, you can find them on his website, which is donaldmcrae.com. And if you want to follow him on Twitter, he is at Donald G. McRae. That is at Donald G. McRae. I hope you enjoyed that. Maybe took your mind off all the goings-on at Arsenal or the lack of goings-on and everything else. You know, we could all use a bit of a distraction. Uh, Have a great weekend. James and I will be here on Monday with an Arscast Extra for you. God knows what we're going to be talking about, but, you know, we'll figure something out. So join us for that on Monday. But until then, have a great weekend. Talk to you on the next one. Cheers. Bye-bye. And now, ladies and gentlemen, a statement from Stan Kroenke. Thank you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.